Welcome to Biosphere, a podcast by and for biology enthusiasts of all stripes and patterns. We are biology graduate students of the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech. I'm Aditi. I'm Julian. I'm John. And today we're joined by Heidi Klumpa, a sixth-year graduate student in chemical engineering at Caltech. She's interested in how cells process the information from their environments. She wants robots to do all her experiments for her, don't we all? (laughs) And she likes to imagine that she was Biosphere's first fan, which is probably true because she's also produced our first piece of fan art. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you. I almost forgot about that. (laughs) Should we play the rating game? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we got to start with that. Let's do it. Okay, so I guess we should start with the rating game. So each person give a one to five hot take on mistakes. Ooh. Well, I don't know. I think I'm too self-absorbed to be fine with mistakes. (laughs) I know intellectually that mistakes are the way you grow, right? But I think I'm... I think I'm in Julian's camp as well because I would also like to think that I can see the positive in mistakes, but mostly I just get grumpy about them. So, yeah, two. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to say three for the intellectual reasons that you put out. Julia. <laughs> you need to, well, you know, you need to make mistakes before you can really, I think, before you can really like be confident that what you're doing is like the right way to do it. And I think that that's a very pertinent lesson for graduate school in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people often say that graduate school is the place to make a lot, of, to, to fail fast, make lots of mistakes. So that way you can really ingrain a pattern of like, I don't know, successful habits as a scientist. <clears throat> yeah, this may be jumping the gun a bit, but like the one thing my undergraduate research advisor said that changed my life was he said a PhD is just a series of making every mistake possible. There you go. And then you're like ready to graduate after that because you never make those mistakes again. And I don't know if it's true or not, but there have been so many moments in lab where I've done like stupid things and I've just like thought about that sentence and I've felt free to continue. Like, because usually the mistakes make you feel stupid. I'm like, nah, you just, you had to do this once. Now just move on. So. Okay. So what's your, what's your number? Oh, my number. I would I would give it a one. I'm, I'm a totally one? Wow. <laughs> like, I thought, it, see, I knew we were going to have to do this, so I was like, I should be, like, open and, you know, you know. <laughs> I like how you gave this up, uplifting speech about mistakes. <laughs> You're like, but one. <laughs> no, because it's true. Like, if I, if I were to speak from my heart, I hate mistakes, and I think we spend a lot of time, like, engineering our lives so we don't make mistakes. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, no, I was like, if I'm, I'm, I'm going to be real, it's a one. <laughs> <laughs> so today, um, so what we'll be talking about is mutation rates and basically how long it takes mutation to come up with something useful. All of the information for a living being is encoded in the DNA, so a mutation is anything that changes the DNA. This is how evolution proceeds. It mutates DNA and then new parts are generated. And this is sort of surprising because we know mutations are both harmful and beneficial. Usually we associate mutations with disease. We don't really know if you took a long chain of DNA mutations to produce something useful, what kind of mutations were they and how many. Basically, we'll be discussing something that was inspired by a paper I saw last year that I thought was really surprising. The title of this paper is super provocative. Random sequences rapidly evolve into de novo promoters. So I guess we like break down all the parts that like random sequences. So they took 200 base pair sequences of DNA. They rapidly evolve. Basically what they found is it took a single mutation to like change these things into something functional. And then de novo promoters. So the de novo bit means it was a promoter sequence that was totally new. No one had ever found it before. And then promoter is just the bit of DNA upstream of the gene that the RNA polymerase binds to to promote expression of the gene. 
And I just found that to be super shocking because in my brain, the idea of evolution and like functional things being made is it requires, like it should require several mutations. Mm -hmm. Like why is it that a random sequence is so close to something useful? Mm -hmm. yeah. I yeah. just want to take a quick step back and explain what some of this stuff means really quickly. So as Heidi explained, DNA is basically the blueprint of a cell. Now what that DNA does is encode various proteins or functional elements in some way and it encodes it using a combination of four letters, A, T, C, and G, which stand for four different chemical compounds that pair together. A pairs with T, C pairs with G, and that's how you get the double-stranded helix structure that we all know so well. A codon is essentially three uh, letters in a row that specify a certain amino acid, and an amino acid is, of course, a building block for protein. When your RNA polymerase is transcribing your DNA, what it's doing is making a copy of the DNA called RNA that is basically an exact copy of the gene, more or less. And that copy of the gene can then be used to make protein because then the cell can read that copy and say, oh, this is the protein that I want to make right now. The reason we use RNA instead of just using DNA is because you want your DNA to be protected for this exact reason. You don't want to introduce random mutations, so you don't want to just have random bits of DNA being read by random parts of the cell. You transcribe it and then you take that transcription and then you start making the protein off of the RNA. That's effectively what's known as the central dogma of biology. DNA is transcribed into RNA and that RNA is goes on to be transcribed into a protein. Mm -hmm. And I would just add that it's important, especially in the context of this paper, to recognize that not all of the sequence of DNA is spent coding for functional Absolutely. units like these promoters that are important for regulating how well expressed or uh, well produced these functional units are in the cell. These regions, these uh, sort of regulatory regions called promoters are essential for keeping everything in check around the cell so that certain components aren't overproduced, underproduced, or produced in conjunction with the wrong machinery or anything like that. So the, these promoters are like really essential and understanding how quickly they come about through evolution is, is fundamentally important to our understanding of this regulation process in life. The way that I thought about this paper and maybe it would be useful to like use a metaphor. Imagine that you have a computer program and in your program text is just random gobbledygook, right? Just like, just totally random letters. And this program has an interesting feature where it copies itself with mistakes every time. And then maybe let's say it deletes the previous iteration. And the question that this paper is asking is how long do you have to wait before that program actually does something on the computer, going from complete random junk to actually a functional program? Mm -hmm. And so I guess the question that immediately comes to my mind is there's two ways that the, that results from this could be interpreted. Either you're asking a question of the speed of evolution or you're asking a question about the number or the fraction of possible, you know, I'm using air quotes, possible programs that are functional, right? And, and how fast you can explore the whole space and find them. So yeah, what does the paper have to say about that? Yeah, I feel kind of the main takeaway is that promoters are surprisingly easy to make. It wasn't necessarily a statement about like how fast evolution can mm. make functional things, but a promoter is actually a very basic function. It doesn't take evolution a long time to make something if the thing you're trying to make isn't very hard. 
So once they found this result, part of the paper I thought was really surprising, which I guess was sort of novel, they were like, mm -hmm. okay, it's pretty easy to make a promoter. They were like, wait, why isn't most of the genome yeah. Promoters. promoters, like why is the RNA polymerase sticking everywhere? Mm -hmm. And so then they, they showed two really interesting results of like positive and negative selection for RNA polymerase binding sites. So they looked at essential genes and basically asked how frequently does like an RNA polymerase binding site appear in the middle of a gene. So that would be a problem because it would just start in the middle and it would make useless protein. But it turns out that the majority of the cost of doing that isn't that you're making useless protein, it's that you're stopping the actual thing that you need from mm -hmm. being expressed. Hmm. So essential genes should select away from basically being interrupted in their very important work. Right. Um, so that was very cool. But then I asked the reverse question. Is it possible that you would enrich RNA polymerase binding sites in sort of deleterious genes? So then they looked into these toxin antitoxin systems, um, and they found that in the toxin genes there were, at least they, they found by whatever their statistical method was, mm -hmm. that they were more likely to find RNA polymerase binding sites in the wow. toxin genes. So it was like okay to interrupt toxins because wow. that was sort of less important. Do you want to briefly explain what an antitoxin toxin system is? I don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. I know, like I, I hear, I know they're used in synthetic biology all the time, but. And I, know, I, yeah. I don't know exactly how they come about, but my understanding of it is it's sort of this idea of a selfish genetic element of yes. some kind, where um, in the same region of the genome, you're producing both a toxin and an antitoxin, which forces the organism to not lose either component of an inserted whatever piece of DNA. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so basically, it is is forcing the organism from modifying this region of the genome by making the toxin and the antitoxin. Because if this gets modified, or they try to get rid of this gene somehow, then if you're only producing the toxin, you die, mm -hmm. right? right yeah. What if you have some mutation where you're only producing the antitoxin? Then good for you, but... <laughs> <laughs> I guess you have to get But lucky. it's less like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have to get more lucky to, yeah. to get rid of the insertion, mm. I, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, that, crazy, but... yeah. Hmm. I thought that was super cool, both as like a, like it's, it's maybe an implicit sort of like gene regulation technique. And it's, it, it seems like, oh, this is extremely useful because it's very easy to promote expression of a gene, but it's like actually this could cause a problem because if you want to have a very large genome, it's stuff's going to stick everywhere. Yeah, it's sort of interesting because we're talking about, or at least like we're talking about DNA mutations that give rise to new functions and new organisms. And I guess we have to remind ourselves that DNA has these like coding and non-coding regions. Mm -hmm. So you can you can increase your fitness both by um, like changing the coding bits, like actually changing the machines that are doing the work, or like tuning the relative amounts of the machines that mm -hmm. you have, or like when and at what time they're expressed. Um, fitness meaning your cool. your like evolutionary fitness, your ability to survive, uh, yeah. reproduce, yeah. and so yeah. on. I guess your ability to take the most advantage of your environment. Exactly. <laughs> you will not get more swole. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh man. Um, I guess the other thing that I looked at because. I'd, I'd been originally very excited about this paper because I was like, oh man, evolution can just make stuff. That's really great. <laughs> and then, I mean, and I also, I, I like, I wanted to have a moment of awe because the experimental setup for this was basically they grew, they, they generate this, I guess, libraries, a whole bunch of like test promoter sequences, and they put them upstream of the lactase gene which I guess people, you may know if you're lactose intolerant, you, you need this gene to be able to, <laughs> I guess, uh, <laughs> metabolize lactose. And then they grew the microbes on lactose to see if any of them had like gotten the mutation that they needed. And, mm -hmm. and they did this for multiple 
generations. And it's just crazy to me that the first few times you do this, they all die because, but because you can't. But you wait long enough and they're like, aha, we have a solution. And, and admittedly, it wasn't hard to come up with that solution because the more complicated bit, which was the enzyme that can turn lactose into something useful, was can we there. Can we port this to humans? Because I'd really like to ha like be able to drink milk again. Oh, no, Sidebar that may not actually be useful, and you'll probably know this, but I was just shocked. I think like before they knew how lactose tolerance or intolerance didn't work, they sequenced the lactase genes of people who were tolerant and not tolerant, mm -hmm. and they were identical. Mm -hmm. And this was flabbergasting. Why are they exactly the same, but right. I can do it and you can't? And it was because it was a mutation in a non-coding region. It was mm -hmm. the regulation of yeah. the gene mm -hmm. that was go. important, yeah. um, which I just, it's like, it's super cool. Because um, <laughs> you just think everything is about genes. Anyway, so yeah, again, yeah. but just coming back to like, just how cool that is that like, I mean, I guess this is also how antibiotic resistance works in a way as well, that it's sort of like you create an environment that it's impossible for a microbe to live in. You mm -hmm. wait a bit and then suddenly it will. And I think Life there finds are... a way. Yeah. <laughs> but wait, but wait. So not to spend too much time on this like side note, but okay, if I'm lactose intolerant, <laughs> but I have the same gene as someone uh, intact as someone who is tolerant, and we know that evolution can find useful promoters very quickly, why... Why can't, why can't I drink okay, milk? So, okay, so this is something that's drinking milk every day, John. Oh, I see, I, I see. They need to no, put more selective pressure. This is also... <laughs> so something else I wanted to ask you guys about was one, one of the words in the title of this paper is rapidly. And why they're yeah. calling it rapid is because it's one mutation. But if you look in the data, it takes 50 to 100 generations. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and mm -hmm. that's E. coli. So maybe that generation is anywhere between 20 minutes and an hour. You don't have 50 generations yeah, <laughs> to, wait, me, to yeah. wait for your new, your new genome. Yep, yep. And so I was wondering if there's an interesting analogy with like thermodynamics and kinetics with in terms of like, because mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. talk about there being like a fitness landscape. There are perfect analogies to gravitational potential energy that like if you put a ball at the top of a hill, mm -hmm. it will go to a low energy state at the bottom of the hill. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of thinking that proteins are sort of the same, that there are these like, there's like a low energy state, which is like mm -hmm. organisms that grow really well, that are very, very fit. Mm -hmm. And so we're all trying to find mm -hmm. that place. And so basically what they said is the difference between maybe this valley that everyone wants to be in and mm -hmm. the peak that we actually are in is one base pair. Hmm. But that doesn't tell us anything about the kinetics of like how long will it actually take you to traverse that space. Yeah, yeah. Um, roll down and, also, yeah. and also, yeah. you know, like this, I like this, um, this metaphor, but there's also dynamics of the environment, right? Like this potential landscape of where the ball is and where it has to fall is directly dependent upon the environment and selective pressure that the organism finds themselves in. So the valleys are shifting, and now you're asking a question of like, okay, amid all these shifts, maybe like over time there is a well that sort of is constant, and how fast does it take to get into that well? So there's like all these dynamics going on. It's very complex, but it is, it's very beautiful and interesting too. The other thing that I looked at in getting ready for this episode was like, okay, promoters are easy to make. It's a small barrier you have to cross. But what about proteins? How hard is it to make proteins? Mm -hmm. So this is much murkier because I, I didn't read as deeply, but I did try to look a lot. Has anyone tried to express proteins from random sequences mm. and like seen how useful they are? Mm. Um, and I guess people have done this. Um, so I found this paper in Nature from 2001 where they generated so a library where they had 6 times 10 to the 12 six trillion sequences, they're all 80 amino acids, and they asked how many of these stick mm. to ATP. So I guess ATP is like, I guess it provides energy. Mm. So the idea was if you're going to be an enzyme, you need the ability to stick to ATP. Mm. Um, does anyone want to have any That's guesses about the frequency 
like one in what number? One in ten to what power? Actually, stick to ATP. Ooh, a hundred percent. Bold moves. Life is inevitable. <laughs> John loves mistakes. What did I say? <laughs> one in a trillion. <laughs> one in a trillion. Six Six one in a million. I'm going like right in the middle. One in millions. So you're saying one in ten to the six. six, and you're saying one in ten to the twelve. Yeah. Um, you're saying, you're one, saying... <laughs> one in ten to the zero. <laughs> yeah, I'm sticking to my guns on this one. <laughs> nice, it? nice. It's one in ten to the eleven. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. So. Okay. Again, so, so I just guess, under a tri- one one order of magnitude below a trillion. Yeah, so yeah. I guess I guess they okay. found like sixty of them, maybe. Mm. This is a very different result, I guess, than the the evolvability one, which sort of said one in ten random two hundred base pair sequences RNA polymerase can stick to it, which is very different than one in ten to the eleven mm-hmm. stick to ATP. Yeah, really so cool. I guess the performance requirements for what makes a protein are are much higher. Then you can ask a related question, which is not asking like how quickly does a random sequence become a protein. But a protein that already works, if I screw up one of the amino acids, what's the likelihood that it loses its function? Right. Mm-hmm. Which might tell you something about how unique it is. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, it's thought that like a single amino acid change um, can disrupt quite a lot. But it's, it depends on, is that amino acid crucial to the structure? Because as soon as you mm-hmm. lose the shape, mm-hmm. you sort of lose the function. And maybe someone else wants to talk about the importance of like protein structure. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I mean, the amino acids that are coded for by these sequences end up in a polymer. So just a, a chain of, of amino acids that, and each of the different amino acids, there are 20 uh, canonical ones, each of them has different chemical properties. So when you have this polymer and you put it in water, it basically starts to randomly fold up into its lowest potential state, lowest potential energy state. And so this is this process is called folding, and the structure that comes out of this folding process confers some function to the protein in the cell um, because of the orientation of all of these different uh, molecules. Eventually, some active site usually is created that can interact with um, you know, a small molecule or another protein or something like that that gives uh, this 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 folded polymer a function in the cell. So, from these two papers together, can we conclude that evolutionarily it's much easier to evolve new regulation of a protein's expression than it is to evolve a new protein? So, I think they gave themselves a very easy. Problem. So they already had this com like the complex molecular machine was already there. It was mm. RNA polymerase. How many steps? How many boxes do you have to check to get new regulation? And mm. if it's like just get a sequence that an existing protein binds mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. that seems to be very easy. Mm-hmm. But you're sort of assuming that that protein already exists. Yes, and it seems like between these two studies together, that it's much easier in evolutionary time to tweak the levels of expression than it is yeah. the function. Yes. Yes, I agree. But this actually comes kind of to your research, right, Heidi? Like in developmental biology, mm. people ask the question of how easy is it to evolve new structures and functions in like a body plan, for example. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and I, I think sometimes the answer is actually just changing the expression levels of certain signaling proteins mm-hmm. or signaling molecules. And yeah, I mean, if that's all there is to it, then it should be then off of that logic for whatever... Um, you know, part of the body plan that could be changed in that way, it would be relatively easier to evolve that than it would be to evolve a whole new set of developmental proteins or something like yeah. that, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. It is, it is. It also kind of, maybe this is too general, but it maybe also explains why organisms like 
mammals have like large genomes and E. coli have small genomes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like if you think about the range of functions that we're mm-hmm. able to complete, I guess we have more parts, but also I think this is also correct as well that the proportion of the genome that's non-coding is much larger for yes. us than it is yeah. for small yes. organisms. So I mean, is more yes. regulation. I think there's there's some research uh, showing that the size of the genome correlates with the amount of um, transposons and these other hmm. selfish jumping pieces of mm-hmm. DNA that can copy and paste themselves mm-hmm. and sort of wreak havoc with the genome, but mm-hmm. also provide sequence that can be enhancers or different regulatory regions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, if you look at different clades of animals and how big their genomes are, it can bounce all over the place. Yes. Like in my lab, we study rove beetles, and some of of the beetles that we've sequenced have pretty small genomes, like 100 million base pairs. And then a group that seems kind of similar, it's sort of similar body plan, maybe a little bit bigger of a beetle, will have like 1.5 billion base pairs. It's like 10 times more Mm -hmm. DNA in their genome for not that obvious of a reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess maybe this comes back to also like evolution as a design process is fundamentally different than like engineering as a human design process. There, there's, there's history. So like you, you can keep pieces around just because they're not useful anymore. Frances Arnold has this class where she talks about the directed evolution research that she does. And she used this example that you can imagine like in the future, someone discovers a ship and there's a long chain on the ship and it's connected to like one of these like old desktop computers at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And people like spend forever taking like apart this desktop computer and like understanding its circuitry. And it's like, wow, this is a really complicated machine. But then it turns out that the ship is using it as an anchor. Like the primary reason it's useful, it's performing a function because it's heavy. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> so it may have had like a historic, and anyway, evolution is sort of the same. It's like the, the cell finds a use for these parts mm-hmm. and yeah. it's not necessarily always clear what it's doing and it may have certain features that are related to like previously important things. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But if like, I guess particularly in DNA and DNA that's not being expressed, you can sort of keep it around. Bacteria, I guess, has different performance objectives. So in bacteria, you have lots of tight interactions that have very, I guess, like precise control. And that's sort of what you need. But mammalian transcriptional regulation is full of sort of multiple components and these like messy, loose interactions. And it's very hard to understand. It doesn't seem to make sense. Maybe what this gives you is like sort of like a squishiness in terms of like you have much more fine control. I mean, you can make this sort of crazy pattern. Again, maybe like as an engineer, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But again, that the, the looseness of it, the fact that there's multiple components and mm-hmm. there's these like not very high affinity interactions gives you a lot of programmability. Um, yeah, that's sort of like a fundamental trade-off. The other cool thing about the animal case is that if you if you mess with development, you can get vastly different morphologies and the end product of your animal, mm. right? And you can do it by modifying very few regulation of very few genes. Like some classic experiments in fruit flies, like if you express the wrong transcription factor, then you'll get legs on the antenna. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Instead what? of antenna. Yeah. yeah. And so with animals, um, it's useful to think about how important regulation is in changing body shape, things like body shape. It's actually mm-hmm. much easier than one might imagine. Like you mm-hmm. don't even have to change proteins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, you could just change where they're expressed and when they're expressed and how long they're on for and get striking differences. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's very interesting because, like, it says something about, like, because the developmental programs that happen in insects are very well conserved, right? Like, some a subset of, of insects by eye have vast diversity in mm-hmm. morphology, yet 
use the same system, mm -hmm. right, to develop. And so it's just interesting that such a system could evolve that you could just tweak a little bit of expression of one mm -hmm. protein at one point in development, and now you have legs on your where you're intended yeah. to be, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. that, and that maybe in some weird situation that could be useful. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we think about this because uh, in our rove beetles, they've repeatedly evolved to look like ants, mm -hmm. right? And that seems like a very striking morphological change, and it really is. Yeah. Um, but you can get that kind of striking change by maybe just changing some mm -hmm. expression of developmental genes. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden you have a narrowed waist and yeah. you know long legs and beautiful ant body. And all it takes is a single base pair sometimes. <laughs> Seriously, like that's crazy. How do you handle mistakes when they happen? In, um, in life? What kind of mistakes? Or, Sorry, so I, I, mean yeah. like, I mean like a mistake in lab. Uh, and okay. So I feel like, I, I can talk a bit first, but like for me, yeah. I feel like this ranges from like doing a calculation for maybe an expensive experiment and then realizing that all my concentrations are half of what they need to be because yeah. I needed to multiply by two because I was going to mix two things together. Yeah. And it's like... That was that was so stupid, and I feel like I've been given you know responsibility and money to do these things, and like I, I didn't even use my brain to do an obvious thing. So I think there's like like planning mistakes mm -hmm. that make me mm -hmm. really upset. Yeah. Um, but then there's also dumb mistakes like I'm walking from the cell prep area to the cytometer and I drop my plate. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> ah, <laughs> there just went twenty hours of my life. Um, yeah, so I guess this is different from failure because I think there's there's a moment where like you, you get bad data or things are confusing and that's frustrating because yeah. time is lost. Mm. But the feeling that like I could have avoided this, like yes. I, I should be smarter. Mm. Um, I, I potentially wasted something very valuable, my time and the government's money. Like, what do you what do you do? I I don't know. I think for me, I don't I don't pretend that I have like a totally great handle on this yet because sometimes I get more annoyed and then I'll try to redo it immediately. Hmm. And that doesn't always go very well. And then because you're already frustrated so you can't focus as well and then you tip over a bottle of something you were trying to use and then it's like, okay, game over because I kind of needed what was in that bottle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think one thing that I've been working on is recognizing when it's time to step back mm. and saying I am frustrated right now, I'm not gonna do a good job. Sometimes you can't, sometimes there's a deadline or a time crunch and you really need to get something done by a certain day of the week and if you don't do it now, it's not gonna happen mm -hmm. in time. And at that point, you have to learn to like, even then, step back, take 20 minutes, yeah. go outside, mm -hmm. yeah. walk around, recognize that it's not necessarily life or death and then come back in. Yeah. For times where I do have the flexibility of saying I'm not gonna do this right now, I've been working on saying, I'm not going to do this right now. I'm going to go read some papers for a little bit. Or if it's close to 5 or 6 p.m., say, I'm going to go home. Mm -hmm. I'll come back to this tomorrow. And that's been something I've been trying to work on because it's, I mean, this stuff happens. And, and sometimes when you're tired, you have to recognize that you're not going to get any farther with what you're doing. And if anything, you might make it worse. And so that's been, that's been something I've been working on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's really hard because you want, there's a sense that, to be successful or do good work, you need to work hard. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's yeah. unclear in that moment what is the what does the work hard person do? Right. Do yeah. they they keep plugging along or do they 
responsively wait until the next day. Right. Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been learning this lesson as well, Aditi, and uh, I feel like I feel like there is this sort of mythos of the hardworking, you right. know, student or person in life, or you know, whatever. It could even be someone that doesn't even do science, right? Like we just have this conception of uh, what a successful person and a hardworking person might look like, and oftentimes like we fail miserably short of that conception and uh you know or i should say fall and it's not a failure though because i feel like in becoming a professional and like going through this rigorous training your phd as a phd student is learning to listen just as much to your data or sorry just as much to yourself as you do to your data and your work right and i think that's sort of what you were describing there dt mm-hmm. like you're you're assess- you're becoming more aware of and i and i definitely feel this in myself too like becoming more aware of what your sort of physical and mental state is mm-hmm. while doing these experiments and then being fair with yourself and saying like i probably shouldn't be doing this right now yeah. <laughs> like i'm dead tired and i'm going to divide everything by two by mistake <laughs> and you know and yeah. waste a lot of money um and like those mistakes, I feel like you get better at avoiding those mistakes as you get better at listening to yourself over time. Um, but that runs counter to this this vision that we have, this this myth that we have of what a successful person looks like. And so it can take a little while where those things are sort of in conflict and butting heads. Yeah. Um, and we hear this all the time with yeah. like the startup world, right? Like totally. you can't get a company off the ground unless you're working 100 hours a week for a year. Nobody can work 100 hours a week for a year. Mm-hmm. That, it doesn't happen. Without serious cost. Without serious or, cost. And probably 40 of those hours, they're not at their cognitive best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, oh, yeah. Or even 60. <laughs> now, there are, there are some people that seem kind of like, like can do without sleep and right. can they work a mutants. lot harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's some mutants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some people, but it's, but it's really low percentage. Yeah, really low yeah, percentage. yeah. yeah. And I'm not really sure there's a fitness advantage because I'm not sure they mate well. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, please don't cut. <laughs> no, we're keeping it. We're keeping that. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, being being real with yourself and recognizing that not only may, like you might not be like one of those people, but also like you don't have to be to be successful. Yes. You don't have to be like one of those people. That is one version of success that works for a very small subset of people in the world. And pushing yourself to to look like them, to look like something that you're not is only going to bring pain. Like, yeah. And, and <laughs> potentially there's a selection bias because what we, we see that six, there's a correlation between maybe like successful people and this crazy work life, but we don't see people who have that crazy work life and maybe aren't successful. Like I don't, yeah. I don't know where the, what that percentage, where yeah. the false negatives yeah. are. Yeah. And um, also like something that someone said to me recently that I wish I had heard earlier was that a, the PhD is an opportunity to figure out how you work best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I sort of wish that I had maybe experimented a little more. I mean, maybe I've sort of done it and like learned some small things about like the importance of organization, you know, getting enough sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can you can learn about yourself how you how you work well. So it's yeah. maybe an important thing to do. Yeah. Um, and like this is part of that process. Yeah, and totally. maybe instead of like working hard, you I mean, I guess yeah, I say work smart. And sometimes I, I don't find that useful because I'm like, Okay, like I can't be clever all the time. Yeah. But it's like it, it, it can at least be responsible to say like, yeah. you know, I'm 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 tired now. I need to I need mm-hmm. to stop. Mm-hmm. 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 What about you, Julian? Well, I was gonna say it definitely is useful to stop and think sometimes. 
Here's one example of a, a mistake that happened in our lab last year. We had this massive ant colony that we collected from oh, the field. No. And <laughs> we had it in boxes. <laughs> and over Christmas, mm -hmm. when all the grad students were away, they escaped into our building. And it was bad. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of ants. Ants were getting into other people's lab spaces, and it was bad. And our professor ended up working for... I don't even know how many hours on Christmas Day, cleaning up. <gasps> oh my oh, god! Yes, yeah. Heard this story, and but he I has young that. kids. It was bad. It was really bad. Wow. And so on Slack, you know, and seeing messages about ant escape and clean up, and yeah. it was very stressful. Um, and that was a mistake in how we were housing the animals, but we didn't have experience with it beforehand. Um, if we had maybe thought more beforehand about how we housing it, it could have been avoided. But at the same time, also, there's like no labs that have experience with this particular ant or with massive colonies in general. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes mistakes happen and it has to happen in some sense before you figure out how to mm -hmm. properly proceed with an experiment yeah. or with... You know. Now I think some people don't really understand how dangerous ants can be. Like maybe they're thinking <laughs> These ones in their don't heads sting. like they like, bite, but um, but maybe some people are thinking sting, like what what happened? Did they raid your fridge? You know, like well, what's they the got worst? into the kitchen. Yes, they're yeah. really quite vicious. Yeah. You've seen Indiana Jones in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, I was just thinking. They might not move quite like they do in that show or be quite that big, but they are equally as voracious. Oh, they gosh. won't necessarily drag a person into their car. But, <laughs> <laughs> they'll take down anything pretty much. Oh, that was not um, Yeah, it was bad. I don't know. What's the answer? Should we have thought more about the well, so see, this ant is my, containment? Or, I, should I, we have, or did we need to experience that? Well, how did the lab, I guess, the, the, back to Heidi's original question, like how did the whole lab feel after that happened? It's a terrible feeling. I had a hard time enjoying my afternoon on Christmas because I was no I knew that Joe was there spraying ethanol to clean up all these ants. Right. Um, I'm so impressed with that also. Like you like I never see I mean PIs don't normally go into labs and I guess he had to go and that's why he went. He got an email but, from some postdoc who I guess was working on Christmas that Oh man. But talk about sweat equity. Like just <laughs> props. Anyway. Yeah. We, I mean, we changed how we were containing the ants. Yeah, <laughs> we're yeah, more yeah. careful you now, I guess. haven't had a serious escape. No, there was really some minor escape last yeah. night, but I okay. caught it before, yeah. before it got, <laughs> before out, of it got out of hand. Yeah, we had better yeah. moats and better containment. I yeah. mean, I mean we, we changed how we operate. Did you add um, alligators to your moats? <laughs> <laughs> That's what you need. <laughs> Only mineral oil. <laughs> That's actually hilarious. I went to this museum in Amsterdam called Micropia, which is all about mm. like microbial life, mm. uh, but also just small things because there's an ant exhibit and it, it's weird because they have basically this, like there's in the center is rotting fruit with like ants climbing all over it. Mm -hmm. And then there are these tubes that go from that central enclosure into like ant farms on the edge. So you can sort of look at the ant farm, but you also see them on the fruit. But there is there is a water. So because I was like, why are these ants just out in the open? But it's because everything is sort of submerged. So the only way to exit the rotting fruit arena, I guess, is through a, a tube, um, <laughs> yeah. which is like fully contained in plastic. All the moats. Yeah. Um, all the moats. It's, it's All ant keepers know if you keep ants, they'll escape at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And some ants are better at getting out than others. Yeah, yeah. And ours are quite good at getting out. That's so. amazing. But to your credit, these ants, as I understand it, have not been worked with as model organisms no, before, they right? Haven't. And yeah. so there is really wasn't anything known about how to properly contain them. That's true. And so maybe it took a it's, big mistake like that yeah, yeah. to get to the point where you had adequate containment. I guess like, so. Yeah. It sucks that it has to happen, but still. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I think in industry this happens, or like whenever there's a big like chemical spill or right. something, like you spend a lot of time thinking about, I think it's hard because you want to answer the emotional question about like, should I have known better? Like, did I, did I fail to do my responsibility? Right. But then there's the practical question about how do we make sure this never happens again, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is like something else that I try to do after I make mistakes. I actually found there's like a sad page in the back of my notebook, which is the like... never again page. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I work with this liquid handling robot. It's called the Tcan Evo Freedom. But um, if it freedom, I yeah, incredible. Sorry, continue. I, I don't know. Um, there's there's these two arms that pick up plates, and them picking up plates correctly really depends on them like not being like warped in any way. But the problem is if if you run the wrong protocol or like something's in the wrong place, it can crash and it can break. Um, and then it takes 30 minutes because you actually have to, to recalibrate it, you have to remove a lot of the pieces and like get it to lie flat on the workbench. And Anyway, it's, it's a very costly mistake and it c- can be fixed, which is nice. It's much better than the mistake that cannot be fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically in my protocol, in my lab notebook, I have like a set of steps. Like one of the things that I did is like every mistake has turned into a line in the protocol, which is like, have you checked mm-hmm. X? Mm-hmm. Like check this box when you've yeah. done Y. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be another good way to reply and like sort of give you a feeling of control over the situation again, because yeah. I guess mistakes, well, the problem is you feel like you've lost control. So mm-hmm. putting in those checks mm-hmm. and, and going slow. Um, oh, and the other thing I yeah. try to remind myself is that it's like, it's good that the experiment gets done at all. So I, I try mm-hmm. to be like, mistakes that are fixed are fixable. Yeah. So mm-hmm. much better than mistakes mm-hmm. that aren't yeah, fixable. Yeah. yeah. I like that method too, Heidi, because it shows like, I think the appropriate amount of humility in doing these experiments in like, like I need to have this check list mm-hmm. to be able to make sure that I do it without any mistakes, which I think is something that maybe some scientists would with, with less humility would balk at, but like... Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think it's a way more um, uh, consistent way to ensure yeah. that there aren't any well, mistakes. Well, I mean, I, yeah. there's a lot of psychology literature on this, I think, yeah, where yeah. you have to do <clears throat> checklists, basically, when there are mission-critical things. Because yeah. even if you're very experienced, say, in aviation or in medicine, people make mistakes yeah. unless yeah. they go through a very specific checklist, like you have to do this, you have to mm-hmm. do that, you know, mm-hmm. you have to pull this lever, you know, whatever it is in, in aviation. And, you know, it's been shown that doing the checklist, even if you've had 30 years experience and you're way over 10,000 hours, is totally necessary mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to not crash a plane. Mm-hmm. Because humans sort of were just built for mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if we can bring us back to the idea of mutation. Like sometimes mistakes are useful, but often mistakes are deleterious, right? Like yeah, we're, yeah. we're like these soft, squishy things. Yeah, um, <laughs> and it's like sometimes nice we like wander into beautiful things, but we also yeah. wander into the forest. <laughs> To wrap up the episode, we spent 10 minutes writing poems, which summarize the topics of the day. Please enjoy. All right, and we are back. Did everybody write a poem? Mm-hmm. Everybody wrote a poem. Everybody wrote a poem. We have no upgoer fives today. I guess I'll just go first. Mine's short. DNA can often change. The effects can span a whole range. But when the leg of a fly is an antenna, oh my, <laughs> boy, can mutation be strange. Wow. That's a good that's one. That's good. That was really good. Oh, thank you. Too. Yeah, that was really good. I was really proud of mine, but I'm not. <laughs> you want to share your Heidi? Yes. It's an important cultural reference also. Oh, oh yeah. Um, okay, so DNA makes mistakes. DNA has those days. 
Sometimes polymerases can stay out too late and come to work tired and add the wrong base. <laughs> we find something useful every time we mutate. Short and sticky is easy. There are harder things to make. DNA reminds us of what Hannah Montana would say. Everybody <laughs> makes mistakes. Everybody has those days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I went for a more serious uh, haiku, actually. Mm. All right. Ooh. Vast hieroglyphics. Mistakes in the translation, nature's grand wager. Ooh, Ooh. nature's grand wager. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got two. So first one is a little bigger. Okay. Make tiny DNAs. Oh, what a sight. Let it mutate. You'll get to great height. One or two base pairs to promote. Then call. A mutation's a mutation, no matter how small. Oh. <laughs> nice. Right, that's like second. that's a good Dr. Seuss poem. Yeah. <laughs> and my second one. Build through laborious toil. Ten in a trillion. Stick, mold, work. Forge, great hammer of Hephaestus. Duplicate, <laughs> experiment, traverse. Climb Olympus, descend to Hades. Until your minute machine itself folds in intricate usefulness. At the last moment, Hermes touches with light wand and tiny machines pour forth. Oh, Olympus deliver. to Hades for the like fitness landscape is yeah. just it really incredible. captured it really captured the emotional tenor of this episode. <laughs> I am I am ashamed. <laughs> well well done all of you. Yeah that was so great. good. That was great. Well that's our episode. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Aditi. I'm Julian. John. I'm Heidi. Thanks for listening. This has been Biosphere. A huge thanks to Heidi Klumpa for guest hosting today. You can find her on Twitter at Heidi Klumpa. And be sure to check out her podcast, also hosted at caltechletters.org, titled Not My Thesis. If you have questions or comments, feel free to email us at biospherepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at biospherepod. We would love to hear your own poems or summaries about the episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast, and share with your friends. Lastly, a big thanks to Caltech Letters for hosting us. Please visit them at caltechletters.org for other great science content. This marks the end of the first season of Biosphere. We plan to return in the fall for more episodes, but we'll be taking a summer break to record new material. Thanks all for listening and joining us on this journey for our first season of Biosphere. <laughs>